studying the theology on tap, go ahead and grab a seat. We're going to get started. If this is your first time, welcome. We are glad that you are here. Uh, we do see some new faces this evening, but you'll notice these sheets of paper kind of scattered around the room. These are really important for how the night goes because uh, you'll see this top QR code. You can scan that and completely unrelated to what we talk about in the first part of tonight, you can uh, basically submit any question you want to. It doesn't have to relate to anything we've said so far, and we will do our best. MEMS is going to be looking at those. If you see questions that you like, you can like those, and they will hopefully go all the way up to the top, and she will pose those questions to us. There's this lovely peacock ball. I'm just waiting for you to smack it. Something it's that's gonna be that's going to be dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Love it. But anyways, my name is Justin. If this is your first time, welcome. This is Brian. And uh, y'all, for the last few Theology on Taps, we've told you this day was coming where we are going to change our name because unbeknownst to us, we were breaking copyright law. Uh, apparently, there's a copyright out there, or trademark, trademark. on the technical words theology on tap yep so we've decided to change the name and the new name is going to be actually really lame compared to what uh a lot of your suggestions were so we ended up changing the prize we said hey submit the best name and the winner gets uh, a prize it'll be pint glasses with the new name well we figured it'd be the easiest thing to do is just keep taught uh, just call it Theology on Tuesdays. So we're technically getting out from the trademark law by calling it Theology on Tuesdays. But we have a winner for the contest. Most creative. The most creative suggestion that was given was by Cole Davis, who couldn't make it tonight. But his was Divine Drafts and Discourse, and he wrote a song about it. That which, we will try to play next time. When he comes Because it to is get, actually amazing. He's going to have to play. I've asked him to play it in person, but oh, I don't wow, know if he'll be able better. to do that. But um, So, Cole, congratulations. You won the uh, most creative suggestion there. Their but band is called Swamp Fox and they rock. They're actually really good, so it's, it's, it's amazing. But That is Cole's band, not our band. Correct. Justin and I don't have a band. You don't want to listen to Although that might be that. a thing. So, um, if you want to stay up to date on all the things that we do in here, now called Theology on Tuesday, you can join our email list down here by scanning that bottom left QR code. Also, we have a group of folks who meet outside of this time called Holy City Life. You can be a part of that group meet. They're meeting this Thursday for something I've never heard of before. It's called a Sippin' Santa. I don't even know what that means, but they're going to be doing it at Prohibition at 630. You can find out what it means by joining the group meet and uh, showing up. It'll be a great time of fellowship. Tonight, I'm excited because normally what we do, we talk about a certain topic. We've talked about a number of topics just in the last four or five months. And every so often, we'll have so many questions that we didn't get to at the end of each time that we set aside a whole theology on tap just to get to the questions that we've never answered. So that's what's in this bowl, is all the questions from the last four or five months of Theology on Tap that we didn't get to. And keep in mind, the topics we've discussed the last few months have been the Barbie movie, technology, power and oppression, just to name a few. There's a whole wide variety. Nothing significant. No, so it's going to be really interesting, the questions that we have not gotten to. And as always... Um, we'll have some time, probably with 20 minutes left or so, to uh, get to the questions that you guys have tonight. Sound good? Uh, you wanted to talk about, what, what was I missing? Advent. Oh, yes, Advent. So, 
in case you have uh, not ever been involved in a liturgical church ever, uh, there is a season called Advent that leads up to Christmas, uh, which is basically the month before, which is historically a season of preparation for Christmas that makes Christmas incredibly more meaningful. And there's a whole raft of stuff going on at St. Philip's on Sundays and other times for Advent, um, which is all on our website. But I wanted to just mention a couple of things. One is it is a great discipline if you don't go to church regularly to decide to do that um, leading up to Christmas. Um, there also is going to be this coming Sunday at 5.30, a service of choral evensong by the treble voices of the St. Philip's Choir, which is a world-renowned choir that was the choir in residence at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, directed by Chris Walczewski right there. Um, but that is a great thing to do. There's an open house at the rectory, which is a beautiful mansion that was given to the church. Uh, that is the weekend after that. And then our lessons and carol service the weekend, uh, the Sunday after the Saturday of the open house. But all that's on the website. All of y'all are invited to all those things. Uh, please come check them out. It'll be a blessing to you. Totally. All right. I don't think we've ever gotten through our entire fishbowl of questions. So if we do it in like one minute per question, we can probably get through all of them tonight. Yeah, Are you up for the challenge? But I'm up for the challenge. I'm, we can I'm always ready, try. I'm ready to do it. I think we're going to do it. All right. We'll see what the first question is here. All right. Is it true that Noah got wasted with his boys? No. Put it down. Get the next one. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> All right, well, I will dignify that with a response. Uh, so Noah did not get wasted with his boys, but his sons got wasted uh, with, uh, in the presence of their dad, and it did not end well. Uh, so let that be a lesson that getting wasted uh, usually doesn't end well. So actually, I think Noah did get drunk. Well, he... <laughs> Just looking at uh, Genesis Yeah, yeah, because 9. he basically... Like passes out. He passes out, and the shameful thing, both was the drunkenness, but also um, his son. Who was it? I can't read. Who keeps going? Shem. Yeah. Yes. No, Ham. Ham was the one who goes in and uncovers yes. his father's they, nakedness. They keep going. So this is a great opportunity to say all the figures in the Old Testament are not exactly examples to follow. That's the kind of whole big picture of the Bible is filled with all these characters who sometimes do great things but more often than not, really blow it. The book yes. of Genesis is a great example. Plenty of dysfunction. Of family dysfunction and drama that is not an example to follow. So don't be like Noah who got drunk and naked in his tent. Yes, thank uh, you for that. So yes, he, but he did though. All right, moving right along. <laughs> did you take that out? Okay, good. I did. I can burn it if you want me to. All right, <laughs> All right. here Justin. With the advances in cloning, how would you feel about the phenomena? I actually don't like it at all. This had to be the technology one that we talked about. So I know very, admittedly very little about technology, but I think for a long time now, and I'm not just talking about since AI and all this stuff, but I think you could go back, really, uh, Mary Eberstadt makes the case in her book that ever since the emergence of uh, the pill, basically, and being able to control our sexual reproduction without physical consequences, Technology has enabled us to do things that man really wasn't created to do. And I think there's what we're seeing in the world is even though we have the ability to do certain things, it's not always a good and right thing to go and do that. 
C.S. Lewis always talks about progress and science in a pretty negative way, and so I'm sure you'll have something to say about that. But I would say, no, we should not play God and clone uh, other people. That's not to say that there's not good things that science can do, but cloning would not be one of them. Yes, I would completely agree with that, with apologies to Dolly the sheep. Uh, but the, the whole idea of cloning is this problem of putting man in a place where God should be. And then the other problem with it is that there used to be an understanding of the importance of something called bioethics, and that you had to have an ethical framework that the work that you did in the science field fit within. But the problem is that our technological abilities have far outstripped our ethical constructs. And so there is no real guidance. It's kind of like the Wild West. Uh, very much the same thing with AI, if you've been following what has been going on uh, with that uh, in the past week, with boards getting fired and CEOs getting fired. It's, it's the Wild West. And um, whenever you outstrip your ethical framework, you are asking for trouble. So that's a great point of showing when the, the, own, the, the main ethical um, ideal that the secular world has is individual freedom. Like you should basically not do anything that prohibits people from being what they want to be and doing what they want to do. That's uh, individual autonomy. And yes. that has so many limits to it. And I think bioethics has suffered tremendously because of yes. it. See, we're crushing this right now, Brian. We're going to get through all of this. <clears throat> all right. In Scripture, there is a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. To what extent can wisdom help guide... Oh, this is a perfect follow-up. To what extent can wisdom help guide us to interact with AI and new technology? Oh, uh, that is a question that we could spend hours talking about. Uh, I think one of the things that is important in that question that I appreciate is that there is, in fact, a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And I think that in our culture, we uh, obliterate that difference a lot of the time. And knowledge is just bare uh, awareness of something, knowing facts. Wisdom is the ability to figure out how to apply and combine those facts and theories in a way that leads to human flourishing. And wisdom typically involves referring backwards, looking backwards to the experience of people in the past. And that is something that our culture is not very good at. Um, again, with C.S. Lewis, Lewis had this whole idea of chronological snobbery, which is basically the idea of saying, we who are alive right now are the smartest, best, most awesome people that ever lived in the history of the world. And because we are so much smarter than all those stupid people that lived back then that didn't even have iPhones, OMG, um, that we can throw out the entire accumulated knowledge of the human race because we are so much better. Um, but that is the idea of throwing out wisdom altogether. Yeah, that's a, I hadn't thought of that. Wisdom looking backwards, uh, it's a helpful way to think about it. I would also say wisdom is related to what the purpose of life is about. You talk about flourishing. How do we know what flourishing is? If it's just up to us, you know, whoever speaks the loudest kind of determines what is best, right? But if there's actually a design, if there's a purpose that God has made the world with, then wisdom is bringing ourselves in line with his design and the telos, the purpose of our life. And so um, I think the, 
that's got a ton of implications of what that means. But I think first and foremost with technology and um, AI is looking at the good limitations that God has given human beings, right? I mean, even something you can make the case, I'm not saying it's a wonderful joy to be able to fly in a plane, right? But things like jet lag, you can actually wonder, were human beings designed to actually feel that sort of thing? And you look at the distraction, the addiction of, of cell phone technology, right? All of that has created an entire, yet we can do amazing things. We can talk to people around the clock. We can work around the clock. Now, all of a sudden, um, but we have this incredible loneliness and this distance in our human relationships with people that I would say we actually need to lean into our limitations, lean into the people and the things in our physical location that's tied to the way God has designed us. So yeah, and I think part of the whole I, problem with AI, there's some good things about AI, but part of the problem with it is that just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. There are lots of things that we all could do, but we know that would be really a bad idea. And I think AI, there's a lot of that, and a lot of it goes back to what you're saying about telos and the whole idea of what is your purpose. And I love what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And if you think that is what we're supposed to be about, AI is probably not really helping us get there. And I, I have to say, I just finished teaching a class on um, connecting our, the Christian faith with our work. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest things that technology does is we, we try to use technology so that we can work more efficiently or work less and have more leisure time. But ever since the invention of these suckers, how much leisure time are we actually getting, right? We think, oh, it'll be more efficient because I can do this. Okay, I'm going down a rabbit hole now, so right. we're not going to get through all these. Okay. Uh, but one of the things I would encourage you all to do, go <laughs> look on YouTube and find an episode of The Jetsons, uh, which is a great uh, animated comic series Network. from the 1960s. And it is all based on the idea that technology is going to take over everything and it is going to free you up so that you have just unlimited leisure. Yeah. And that's what people used to think would happen with technological advance. And in fact, the opposite has happened, that people are working more hours on average now than ever in the history of the human race. Yeah. And one of the unique things about Christianity is that work is actually inherently a good thing. Yes, we live in a fallen world where there's frustration and futility to our work, but heaven, the, the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus returns, is going to be a place of work. We're not just sitting around like bumps on a log, nor are we just having a giant holiday or a vacation, but there's, there's work yep. to do. The image is now less of a garden and more of a city where there's work that we are actually enjoying to do. And I think it's important when you look at the way God made this world, we work six days and rest on one day. And so often we try to, we use technology to try to flip that and work one day and rest six days. But um, that goes against what we were made to right. be in our, yeah. our telos. So those are some of the implications uh, for wisdom and technology. Great question. What are some practices you have found helpful in being completely focused during your time with God? Sometimes it can be hard not to think about what's next. That's uh, such a great, honest question. Uh, for me, I think recognizing, just continuing to put yourself in places of distraction 
is the definition of insanity and expecting it to be different, right? So if you know that the TV is on or music is on and that's going to be a distraction. Now, sometimes um, it can, if you just have like instrumental music, that can be fine. But one of the things we've said so often is being out in nature can be a good thing, being outside. I think for me, who's just naturally prone to a little bit of ADHD, recognizing that sometimes thoughts are just going to come and the image that I have is just kind of like water off a duck's back, right? Just let it come. Don't freak out that a, that a, you know a, a new thought has come into your mind. But try to really imagine the Lord being with you as you're praying, as you're opening your Bible. And um, one of the things that helps me is to always ask two basic questions. Um, God, what are you trying to teach me today from your Word? And and why exactly are you bringing this up now in my life? And just being okay in silence. I think that's one of the things we're so mm-hmm. distracted that we are uncomfortable with just sitting still. And I'm so guilty of this where in the car, it's not just music, but podcasts and just always listening to something as opposed to being still. But I think the biggest thing I would say is just, you know, not freaking out when thoughts come in, but practicing the presence of God is a phrase where you're just trying to acknowledge that he's here with you and he has something to share with you would be the first thing that... that And I would say prepare well, and prepare well in terms of thinking about the space that you're going to be in when you're trying to focus on God, because I think for me, at least, if I have a particular place that I know that I can go, where I leave my phone in another room, where maybe I light a candle, where maybe I have a beautiful view, and where no one else is around, and I know that I'm not going to be interrupted that is going to set me up for success in a way that is going to be really different than if I haven't gone into that process thoughtfully. And I also am a big believer in the being outside. Uh, I think if you can be outside without your phone, uh, that is a really great place to be. Uh, Not outside in the middle of the street, but um, outside somewhere that's quiet and lovely. And I would say also counterintuitively, sometimes being with others who are trying to pray and listening to their prayers can be a way to actually focus you more on God. Mm -hmm. We just Mm -hmm. did uh, a couple weeks ago with other pastors in our area, uh, a time of, it was like two hours and it felt like five minutes because what we were doing was going through scripture, but just listening to other brothers and sisters pray. And reading the scripture out loud, which is, that's another great practice. I was amazed at how much that helped me stay focused on on God and, um, and just staying on track, listening to other people mm-hmm. pray. So uh, I know that's a very individualistic question, but I would throw that in there mm-hmm. as well. All right. Let's see here. How do I maintain healthy friendships while also making sure to rightly prioritize my girlfriend slash boyfriend slash spouse? That is a great question. And I think part of what I love about that question is there's this, an assumption implicit in that question. And that assumption is that you need to have friends besides your spouse slash boyfriend slash girlfriend. And one of the reasons that is so important is that our culture, uh, if you, and we're getting to Hallmark movie season, and sorry if you are a Hallmark movie fan, I'm just gonna rag on that for a little bit. Um, Those movies, are oriented toward the idea that there's one person out there, and if you find that person, then suddenly everything in your life is going to be wonderful. 
But the problem with that is it's a lie. There is no one person who can fulfill all of your needs and make you happy. And if you go into a romantic relationship with the idea that the other person's job is to make you happy, you are doomed to failure. So part of what that means is that you must keep good, healthy friendships um, going alongside that. And so part of the way that you do that is to be honest with your boyfriend or your spouse, whatever the situation may be, and to talk about that together and to say, you know, what are, what are some ways that both of us can invest in friendships that are going to help make our lives richer, where we will be built up and filled up and want to come back and share that with each other. So you have to have meaningful time that is developing um, friendship in addition to that time with your spouse. Now, the flip side of that is you don't want to spend all your time with your friends and no time with your spouse or boyfriend. But balancing that is a really important conversation to have together. Did you hear about the study? They found the scientists about the Hallmark. They, they, they discovered a second plot in the Hallmark movies. It's going to come out this season. So all those movies, they finally found a new plot. It's great. A new plot, amazing. Yeah. Um, so anyways, um, one of the things I would say is one of these is not like the others. You know, the spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, I think too often people treat boyfriends and girlfriends like they would a spouse. And, and it's not the same. That is actually not helpful in any ways. There's an exclusivity and a permanence in a marriage relationship that is going to be qualitatively different than your relationship in a, a dating relationship. So I would say don't, those are not all the same kinds of relationships and to be on guard with that. But I thought what you said was, was really helpful and making sure that you're not you know, totally smothering somebody but also making sure you're carving out time. Usually um, it's not going to be easy. It's probably going to be painful. There's going to be things that you have to sacrifice for both of those mm -hmm. to go well. So chances are, if it's uncomfortable in sacrificing for one or the other, you're probably, probably on the right place. track. Yep. All right. So are there any common examples of things that we genuinely think are good, but God likely frowns upon? Common examples of things that we think genuinely are good, but God likely frowns upon. Mm. I would think treating a boyfriend or girlfriend like a spouse is probably something that we think is genuinely good, but actually God says, no, you're not married. So that's just one that's fresh in my mind. Well, and I think another one is, um, I guess what you might call the American success ethic. Uh, there's a great book that we refer to often that's called The Common Rule uh, by Justin Whitmull Early. And basically the point of that book is that it is all too easy if you grow up in the United States to conflate the idea of the American success ethic with what it means to follow Jesus and what the gospel calls us to do. And the problem with that is that there's, there's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with capitalism. There's nothing wrong with um, a lot of these things. But when you, when you think that that's the same thing as your spiritual life, you are in trouble. And this book tells the story of this guy who, um, right after graduating from Virginia Law School, which is a very good law school, um, took a year off with his wife to go and do mission work in China. And they had an amazing time there, really grew spiritually and full of joy and very 
satisfied um, and feeling like they were deeply invested uh, in the things of God's kingdom. And then they came back here and he started working for a mergers and acquisitions firm in DC. And he like had a nervous breakdown in about three months. And he said what he realized was that the uh, window dressing of his life was his Christian faith, but the architecture of it was all the American success ethic. And that he needed to reframe the architecture in order to be able to do what was actually pleasing to God. So that's just one example. So the next question actually ties in, I think, a little bit to this, but um, another similar thing that I can think of would be, um, there's a great title of a book that I was just looking up by Kevin DeYoung. It's about 80 pages, and it's called Do Not Be True to Yourself. And you can imagine, we hear that yeah. phrase, be true yeah. to yourself all the time, and we think that that's, oh, that's like the highest ideal, is just be authentically you. And that what that means by yourself is your emotions and your feelings yeah. in any given moment. That's right. Even yeah. if it goes against what God says yeah. is part of the design. So, uh, again, this is the problem where we make what we feel like on the inside and, and ourselves the ultimate arbiters mm-hmm. of, of truth. But that would be another one where we just take that maxim, be true to yourself, as of course that's a good thing. And there's a sense that like individual, right? Like individuality, Christianity was one of the main things that said individuals are important. Right. Jesus was radical in revolutionizing that. But what we've done is we've taken it to an extreme where individuals are the highest good of, of all things. Um, but the, this next question is, how should we approach our girlfriend's past with bisexuality? Is it true that the Bible condemns this? So, uh, that's a great question. Uh, And I think really even in a broader sense than just that particular instance, uh, that most people, when you are coming into a relationship, most people have a past of some description. And a lot of times that past is not pretty uh, on all sorts of levels. And yes, scripture is very clear that... uh, if you've engaged in same-sex uh, activity, uh, that that is not something that is in accord with God's design. But the flip side of that is it's not really particularly different from any of the other ways that we can fall short of what God's design is. And so I think that the, the important thing and one of the t- signs of a really healthy relationship is the ability to be vulnerable about your past failures, not just one person, but both people, because everyone has failures in their past, to be vulnerable in talking about those, but also to understand that if you're a Christian, that scripture says that you are a new creation, and that because of that, um, you are not bound by that past, you are, if you've repented of it and received God's forgiveness, you are set free from that, and you are able to move on in a way that is healthy. I think one of the things that so often people misunderstand about what the Bible teaches when it comes to sexuality is they will point some sexual sins as worse than others. The reality is what the Bible teaches is that every, this is so radical, people think that humans are basically either good or blank slates, but the Bible has a much more honest, much more uh, darker picture of what human beings are in every capacity that we're broken we're Mm -hmm. bent inwards on ourselves and so every aspect our thinking we've talked about that before um our emotions everything of who we are is is infected with sin 
So the question's not, are some people broken sexually and others not? It's what all of us are actually broken sexually. Right. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people just don't realize that. And the other thing is, do we? it's the ancient lie that God is not good and he's holding out on you. Mm-hmm. Nothing is really new under the sun. That's been the lie from the get-go that God is actually holding out on you and what you need to do is to live what you think is best. But I think especially in sexuality, that's such a hard thing for us to believe that God's created us in his design, which he says all sexual activity, all sexual intimacy is designed for, for what he says marriage is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and do we believe that that's actually good? And if it, if it is, and if all of us are sexually broken, all of us fail, you know, Jesus raised the bar from just uh, actions to thoughts and right. inclinations yep. and attitudes. And when, when that's the level of our requirement to be uh, pure in heart before God, then all of us break that. And that's mm-hmm. the whole, as you said, the point that Jesus came was that he didn't come to make bad people good or good people better, but dead people alive. Mm-hmm. People who are so broken that they need to be restored right. the way that he made them. And so, yeah, I, I do think that we don't have to be tied to the worst parts about us. We don't have to be tied to um, things that are broken in mm-hmm. us, which, again, sexuality is just one area of how we are all flawed and broken. Mm-hmm. And so the biggest thing I would say is, can you believe that God made the world in such a way uh, that he longs for it to be restored to his good design? Yes. So uh, that was a lot in a little bit of time. So here we go. We probably have time for just a couple more. What does it mean to blaspheme the spirit? That is a great question. Uh, so part of the reason people tend to ask that question is that scripture, uh, Jesus speaking, says the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So most people who are Christians would like to know what that means because they would rather not commit the unforgivable sin. Um, but lest you be lying awake at night wondering whether you may have accidentally committed the unforgivable sin, uh, I think that in what, what Jesus is trying to get at in this verse is that, uh, and in the context of it, is that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the only one by whom we can be saved. And if you choose to thumb your nose at that idea, to reject the testimony and the witness of the Holy Spirit about that, that is when you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And maybe another way of looking that through a different lens is that God will not force anyone to believe in him. And that if you are saying, no, I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. No, I don't believe in Jesus. No, I want nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Um, as C.S. Lewis said, uh, then God will say to you, thy will be done. Yeah. So the only sin that can't be forgiven is to just say, I absolutely do not acknowledge you. As I want to have no part of you, Jesus. That's right. yeah. And that's, usually people get hung up, right? On There's some sin out there that I'm not sure of uh, that God's not going to forgive. But right. that's, that's, that's really that's not, not the it. case. All right, one more, and then we'll throw it up into questions. We didn't get any Barbie ones yet. That was really sad. Um, <laughs> it's because you didn't wear your eye and can okay. sign. So um, I guess this was human relationships uh, at the time we talked about that. But why does the church teach singleness as the rule and not the exception? 
why does the church teach singleness as the rule and not the exception? That's interesting because I think a lot of people would say the reverse, that the church teaches family as the rule and singleness as the exception. Um, What the scriptures teach is that being both singleness and being married are both things that are blessed by God and that the important thing is to discern what your calling is, whether you are called to be single or whether you are called to be married and that there is nothing that is less than about being single. And a lot of people will tell you um, that the church errs in the direction of having way too much about families where single people feel like the third wheel. Uh, and that is not the way that it should be. Uh, but part of, part of the issue with all of that is understanding that singleness can be a calling and to uh, embrace that calling. There's some people that feel like they're, they cannot be complete unless they're married to someone. They cannot be happy unless they are married to someone. Um, but in the face of that is the example of what scripture tells us is the perfect life, which is Jesus. And Jesus is not married. Jesus is single through his entire life, but yet experiences great joy uh, and fulfillment and leads a perfect life. Yeah. Paul, Jesus, these are two major figures in the New Testament who were single. And so I think that is something that we're, you see, the main thing is that these are not two uh, in, unequal statuses. Right. Uh, they're the both noble. They're both noble. And I think we also live in a culture, you talked about the dignity of singleness. I think there's also, um, you know, we live in an age that says don't get tied down to anything. So don't get married. Certainly don't have children because those things are going to require time, money, sacrifice, all that stuff. And both of those ideas of just be, being single because you want to live however you want to live is, is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but so too is the idea of not seeing, you know, if God has not provided you a spouse, like he has allotted that place right now in your life. And are you going to, to learn to trust him with that and to be obedient in that context right. and seeing both singleness and uh, family as, as dignified callings mm-hmm. that he calls you to, but you can't obviously just magically force somebody to marry you, right? Uh, nor would that be the wisest <laughs> Let's thing not. Uh, necessarily. But yeah, I think that's, I don't know how it answered the rule or the exception. I think we've taught sufficiently on, on what that means. Yeah. But Mims, how are we doing on questions? I feel like ooh, we should take a second because we only have like two. Okay, well, I have like a hundred. So we can, while y'all are, <laughs> we'll do one more while y'all yeah. are uh, All right. cogitating. I, we came so close. Uh, not. Or not. I told you. Okay. All right. Well, uh, what are your thoughts on St. Philip's history in promoting slavery and using what the Bible says about slavery to back themselves up? That is a really good question, and I would love to try to respond to that. Um, so St. Philip's, like most churches uh, in the United States, has been in different places on that whole issue in its history. But I will say that uh, for its time... St. Philip's actually has um, a history that would be very surprising to most people on that topic. Uh, One of the things, and I'll try not to go on and on about this, I did a whole big research project on this, but one of the things that was interesting is that in the Great Awakening in the 18th century, there was a huge emphasis on the fact that um, 
people of color, whether they were enslaved or free, were equally in the image of God with someone of any other race. And St. Philip's clergy and vestry bought into that very early in the 18th century. And one of the few churches in the country, not just in the South, that included enslaved African-American people as full members of the church, recorded them in the parish register. And actually, our parish registers are one of the chief genealogical sites for African-Americans in the United States. St. Philip's also, despite what you were taught in school about Benjamin Franklin, had the first school for enslaved black children in America starting in the 1730s. And uh, that continued on for decades. Uh, St. Philip's also had members of the church who were free people of color who owned pews, which was very unusual in the colonial period. St. Philip's congregation, up until the time of the Civil War, of people who were full members, over half of the congregation was um, people of color, slave, or free. Um, the other thing that was very interesting is that there were two catechisms that were out for working with slave children. One basically said, slavery is God's will, and you are supposed to stay a slave forever. Um, the other one said, slavery is a temporary state that is not in accord with God's will, and the master is responsible before God for the way he treats the enslaved people that he is in charge of. And St. Philip's was an avid proponent of the second of those. Now, obviously, slavery is horrible, and having any sort of truck with that uh, is not a good thing. But uh, particularly compared to other churches of the time, um, St. Philip's was more progressive than just about any church that you could find in the South in that regard. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, we don't need to, I mean, there's plenty of people who have twisted the scriptures to make them say whatever they want to say, and throughout history they've done that. Um, I don't know, it, none of the clergy currently would ever say that slavery was a good thing or that what we have, uh, even having that in, in St. Philip's was, was a good thing. Uh, but I think it's, it's good and important to actually note what actually happened, right? So we can acknowledge what was wrong and say it was wrong, mm -hmm. while also trying to name with honesty, you know, um, what, was, what was actually taking place was, was fairly radical, uh, historically speaking. Yeah. And the other thing that I would say is that you have to be very careful when looking at that whole issue to not deny agency to people of color, whether they were enslaved or free, who could transcend their circumstances. And one of the remarkable things that uh, if you go back and look in the journal of John Wesley, who was one of the founders of Methodism, um, who preached at St. Philip's in the 1730s, and he wrote in his journal about how deeply moved he was by the worship service at St. Philip's because it was the first place that he had ever worshiped with white people, free people of color, and enslaved people of color who were all coming to receive the sacrament from the same altar and the same cup, um, who were worshiping together. And then he talked with an elderly enslaved woman and was just blown away by her scripture knowledge. So it's not, it's not necessarily the narrative you would expect. Do we have more questions now? Yes. All right. Okay, so 
How does a godly man pursue a godly woman in this day and age? Give background on the foundations of your relationships with your wives. Well, that could take a long time. Um, I will say that uh, part of the way that a godly man tries to pursue a godly woman uh, is to bathe that whole process in prayer and to not settle. Um, and to not buy into the world's ideas of uh, attraction. Um, and I will say I was um, very blessed because when I first met my wife, we were in the same Christian fellowship group in college, um, which was how we met. And then uh, we started dating uh, oddly because my parents moved to New Jersey, which was something that I thought was the end of the world when it happened, uh, but my wife's family, my, who was just somebody I knew at that point, um, they had a summer house near where my parents moved to, and we actually started dating in New Jersey. But one of the things that was really attractive to me about her was that she was really committed to her relationship with Christ. Um, she was very serious about her faith, and... Um, really wanted to be in a relationship that was focused around that. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the ways that I learned this, I didn't exactly see it growing up. Uh, my family kind of, we went to church, but we never really talked about anything outside of praying at the dinner table. That was the extent of our uh, religion, I guess, in practice, uh, other than church on Sunday. But I read um, the missionary Jim Elliott and his correspondence with the girl that he was, now that was, 1940s or 50s? I can't quite remember. Yeah, 50s. 50s. Um, and that was just really another world to see people in a different time period. But folks, what stood out to me uh, in their relationship was, A, they were writing to one another because of technological differences, I guess. But um, what saturated, we have these, which is amazing. So we could see kind of their, their correspondence. And the, the heart to honor God above the relationship what mm -hmm. is what stood out that they were both seeking god's will for their lives even if that meant meant that they would be maybe going in different directions you know one of the ways that you can tell if you're if god's bringing you together is that your eyes are fixed on him and serving him and going in the direction that he is putting before you and all of a sudden you look over and somebody's kind of going in the same direction that's the yep. image that's always stood out in my mind um practically speaking one of the things that, in addition to praying together and serving together, as you know, what are some creative dates to go on where you can actually learn the character of other people? And that was serving together was one of the things that I just love to do. Yep. Um, but you know, I was pretty conservative church in college, and I was really affected. I think my college minister said that he didn't uh, kiss until he got married with his wife, and I was like. At that age where I was like, that sounds amazing. I want to try and do that same thing. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Um, after I got engaged, it didn't last uh, very long. But the idea behind it was actually, I thought, really wise. So often we can try to have everything that God designed for marriage, right? Especially physically, sexually. Those things are meant to bind one together within marriage. They're, they're unifying acts. And that can really cloud your discernment if you're trying to discern what God's yeah. calling you to do is all of a sudden you have this physiological connection, spiritual connection even. Um, and so recognizing healthy physical boundaries was one of the ways that you could actually 
I think, pursue somebody well is by living according to God's standard because it doesn't actually, all of a sudden now you're talking about a million other things to, to occupy mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. that you would be doing, uh, which was profoundly helpful for, for now my wife and I have been happily married for 13 years. So um, I offer that to you. I mean, it's not sinful to kiss you know somebody, but um, I think that was actually really helpful for me in trying to discern you know, strong hormonal urges, but also trying to get to know somebody's heart and character and asking good questions and learning how to communicate with without using what we all default to typically. Yep. Good question. How do you justify other faiths and love those who are of the Jewish or, or Islamic faith while holding the attention of the Christian belief that Jesus is the Son of God? Uh, That is a really good question, too. I think one of the things that scriptures teach us is that every person, every person, regardless of faith or anything else, every person is created in the image of God and therefore has dignity and is worthy of respect. And so I think that that is a baseline thing. But I also think that it's very clear in Scripture that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So what we don't want to say is, oh, it's all, we just all believe all the same things, and isn't that sweet? Um, Because that's just not true. Um, But I think that it is important to acknowledge the differences, but it doesn't mean that you can't love people who have a different faith than you do. One of the things that, because I'm so old, um, I've been able to see happen in our culture, which is really sad, is that it used to be that you could say, I don't agree with you about that, or we see this issue differently, but I still love you, and we can still be dear friends. Whereas today, there's much more of the idea, if you don't completely agree with me, then you are a hater, or a bigot, or whatever. And that is just profoundly unhelpful. So I think that we need to acknowledge that there are differences, but that doesn't mean that we can't love those people. And scripture also tells us, and Christianity is the only faith that actually teaches this, that even if people are our enemies, we are called to love them, and we are called to pray for those who persecute us. And that is truly radical. Yeah, I think one of the things that's helpful is recognizing everybody has absolute beliefs. They, they have exclusive beliefs. Everybody has some view of the world that says this is the way it should be. Even if it's all truth is relative, that's an absolute belief. Mm-hmm. It's an exclusive belief. Um, it's saying this is the way the world is, and everyone has those. So the question is not um, are there, you know, should you or should you not have them? Uh, exclusive beliefs, but which set of beliefs leads to the most peace and harmony in the world? And you touched on this. I think that's where Christianity is uniquely suited uh, over against every other religion. Not only is everyone made in the image of God, regardless of how they behave or what they do, they're still inherently worth um, infinite amount. But Christianity also says over against other religions, that it's not about how good you are. It's not follow these set of rules and work your way up to God. It's the only one that says, actually, you did nothing but supply 
the the need for God to come and save you right. in the first place. Yes. That you um, are saved You're purely purely by yeah. grace. You contribute nothing to God's love. That's the basis for humility. That's the basis for honoring others who differ from you, your enemies even. So I think those ideas are really essential in relating to people who radically differ from you. Yes. Maybe one more. It seems that feminism is a widely accepted and promoted position at this time. How do Christians interact with this? Support or pushback? Well, that is something where I think definitions are really important. Uh, What you mean by feminism, uh, I think that in some ways you can make a really good argument that Jesus was the original feminist uh, because Jesus's attitude toward women in the Gospels is absolutely shocking. We don't notice that because we're sort of used to hearing these stories. But the fact that, for example, that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women is shocking. Um, The fact that Jesus treated women with dignity is shocking in an age where they were literally chattel, where they were property under the law. Jesus gave them dignity and worth. And uh, scripture is very clear also that men and women are equally created in the image of God and that both of them fully bear the image of God. So all of that in terms of looking at equal worth and equal dignity is absolutely rooted in Christianity. there are first wave, second wave, third wave feminism with all of these different tenets that go along with each of those. Um, and there are definitely things in some of that part of feminism that I think Christianity would push back on. But the idea of the dignity and worth of women as being absolutely equal to that of men is a profoundly Christian idea. Yeah, That's a really helpful way of looking at the positive aspects of feminism. I would say we did talk about an entire episode when we looked at the Barbie movie about the first and second and third wave wave feminism, so I encourage you to go back, listen to that if you haven't. I think one of the ways that, as you said, the Bible would push back is all, and I think not even not just Christians, but the world today, a lot of completely secular or atheistic feminists are saying, hey, this whole third wave of feminism that is trying to blur, you know, the question, what is a woman? Uh, That's one of the things where we're blurring what... the differences, like every single difference between a man and a woman, to say we have the technology now to absolutely wipe away all of these differences, or so we think. And that's problematic. Like, actually, the the differences between men and women are not something to be obliterated, but to be joyfully lived into. And uh, celebrated. And celebrated, right? And so I think that's... the fullness of that is the image of God. That's not necessarily a Christian thing, although I do think you can see Christian warrant for it, but you're seeing all sorts of people uh, outside of the Christian faith who are recognizing that right. same truth. Yeah. So, well, y'all, this was fun. We still have a lot of questions <laughs> next time. I was overly optimistic as always, but uh, that's a good quote. We'll be back I in like that two weeks, and I'm not sure what we're talking about in two weeks, actually. So, but we'll be back. And we'll figure it out. We'll we'll figure it out. We'll tell you about it. Sign up for our email list, or uh, uh, you know, hang around, and talk to us. But stick around, keep the conversation going. Thanks for right. coming. Thanks for coming.